Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. We're kind of in this transition point between the NBA playoffs and the draft and offseason and everything like that. And so I wanted to talk with Chris Herring, senior NBA writer for ESPN 538, about both of those things that we ended up talking a whole lot more about the former than the latter because we had some interesting thoughts about the Warriors and their future and what it takes to be a competitive team in the modern NBA. So that is really where the conversation is focused. It runs about an hour. I think you'll really enjoy it. And it's brought to you by Simple Contacts. You can go to simplecontacts.com slash realgm or use the Real Jam promo code for $30 off your order, which is awesome. Hymns, forhims.com slash real, R-E-A-L, for a trial month for $5 while supplies last. And TrueCar, great place to buy a new and used car. And the last thing I want to mention is a great way to support this show, something we're doing right now, is a quick survey. We're getting audience demographics for sales purposes. You can go to podcastone.com slash my survey, or just go to podcastone.com and click the survey banner. And short, completely anonymous, it takes no more than five minutes. And it's just trying to get aligned advertisers with the audience. So the more information we have, the better, more likely it is that I can keep the lights on. And who knows, maybe this can be what, what keys in getting two episodes a week, which people have asked about before. If I get more ads, I am totally open to doing it. I love doing the show. So you can support Real GM Radio, Podcast One, huge favor, doing it, taking that time, five minutes or less, podcastone.com slash my survey. And how about Real GM? Here we go. Thank you so much for coming on. No problem at all. Thanks for having me as always. I think a good place to start is with the, you wrote a piece for 538 about the Warriors as a dynasty, which I thought was interesting. And I think a good place within that was something that you brought up, which has been lost in the shuffle a few times with this Warriors team and there is about their age. And while they are on the younger side for what would be considered a dynasty, and we could talk about definitions if that interests you at all, but, you know, average age of 28 is actually pretty much in line with everybody other than the second Bulls three-peat, which was older, but that was largely because the principles were the, were similar to the original three-peat. Right. No, this team, it, it, it's funny. I mean, it's, you know, I think we're kind of being challenged in a lot of ways in terms of, you know, how we think about dynasties and how different is this and you know I, I, I thought it's been pretty interesting that seeing people sharing the old sports illustrated cover asking whether you know the bulls at the time were bad for the nba and bad for the league and bad for sports and to some extent these arguments are kind of circular whenever they happen and i think you know because of how old you and i are uh, it's easy to look and kind of have those questions and not realize that we're kind of part of the same cycle just 20 years later that, you know, everybody probably sees this during their lifetime once or twice at least. You know, I think the real difference here is Durant, obviously, you know, adding Durant maybe makes it a different question than, than what we've seen before. And one of my colleagues, Kyle Wagner, kind of brought up the idea that in some ways, maybe the Celtics of old, you know, when Walton ended up there uh, after, you know, foot injuries he'd suffered, that maybe this is kind of more like that because they had so much firepower and then we're adding him on, on top of that. But really, when, when you think about it, I mean, this is not a, a really, really young team. It, it just seems that way because all these guys are basically in their prime. So three, four years from now, all of a sudden, this, this won't be a young team anymore. The, the thing that I thought was most interesting that I brought up, and I'm, I'm not sure what changes here, how quickly it changes. I think the thing that kind of sets them apart and it has set them apart and put them in position to to do what they've done and to set them up for long-term dominance is the fact that they, they keep taking less money. And even this week, you know, you've kind of seen suggestions that that won't continue to happen in all circumstances. The Draymond Green, for instance, Chris Haynes kind of wrote a story basically Draymond saying, don't forget that I, you know, I kind of did something to help put KD in play and, and, you know, I'm not doing that again as far as taking a discount. And Clay Thompson, uh, though he's kind of hinted at that and, you know, that there have been reports about him being willing to take less money because he values winning at such a high level, uh, that his father has come out and kind of said, uh, we're not, you know, I would expect more that Clay is not going to really negotiate much for before 2019 anymore. And so, you know, both of these guys are in play for a Supermax at this point. Uh, Draymond for potentially being a defensive player of the year twice in a short span and Clay Thompson for being all NBA, uh, multiple times in a short span. So we'll see, you know, when that kind of money is on the table, taking a, a massive discount might be, might not be in their best interest. And so maybe that'll be kind of a hard test of all this. Steph 
you know, he, he obviously didn't take less this last time around. He was in a little bit of a different situation because I think he, he'd been so undervalued as far as what his actual contract was paying him, uh, from the first time around that I think he kind of had this coming to him as far as, uh, Max Steele. But it'll be interesting because if they continue to do that, you know, we've seen even somebody like Livingston continue to take less in a situation where he's never been a huge, huge earner. Uh, in the NBA, but if if a team continues to do that, or if KD were to decide he's going to do that, that's just so unprecedented in terms of seeing so many people do it. I mean, you have to count basically on two hands between David West and you know Clay did it the first time, and Draymond did it the first time, and Durant has done it. And Steph, even though he didn't really take less knowingly because of his ankle situation, Clay or I'm sorry, uh, Steph took less. I don't think we've ever seen this many people do it at this stage in their career when the team was this talented to begin with. And so that's been one of the underrated differences. And I know it's something that people have talked about a little bit, but it hasn't been talked about enough kind of in line with how big a difference it's made between them and the rest of the teams in the league. Well, that's a very good point. And it also combines with the other way that people don't think about guys taking less, which is the highly talented players like David West that they've gotten for the minimum. I mean, David West did it first for the Spurs, so I think that was part partially of note. But broadly speaking, David West has been the best of the Warriors centers the last two years, and he's been at the minimum. And so, and each year it's a one-year minimum, so that means that it's the they only have to pay him and pay the tax on that two-year part, and then the league pays the rest. Which is, you know, some people would call it kind of antithetical to the way it is. Like, oh, the league's rules are making it easier for the Warriors to be loaded. But something that's fundamentally different now, and is so fascinating to see how this plays out with the Warriors and really what this leads to for future dynasties, is the biggest difference now is that there's so much money that leaving some on the table is a different thing than it was before. Because let's say, while I just I think it's a little bit of kind of retconning for Draymond to say that he left the money on the table sure. for Durant, even if let's say he did do that, he's still getting paid very well. Like this isn't a circumstance. He's getting enough to set his family up. You know, he has a young child, set his family up for generations to come. And so, yeah, he is leaving a little bit on the table. Durant about 10 million this past year. So certain guys, you know, they're, I will never begrudge a player for taking every cent that is available to them ever. I will never do that. But I wonder how this is going to impact players because maybe at certain points you just go, it's kind of the quality of life argument is the easiest way of thinking about it where it's like, hey, I only get six years, let's say, of being able to play basketball at a super duper high level and I'm already going to make enough money to do everything that I ever wanted to do. So maybe I'll take a little bit less instead of maximizing that and set myself up to have more fun while I'm playing and build some sort of a legacy because there is an argument for that. I don't think it speaks to every player, but I think it certainly will speak to some. And so maybe that effect, it already has affected the Warriors, but I think that could really set the table for whoever's next. I don't know who that is yet, but whoever that is, because taking 10 million less when you're already making 25 is very different than taking 10 million less when you're making 15. Oh, totally. I mean, and, and none of that even gets to the idea that, you know, these are pro athletes. So I don't expect that they don't want different challenges, especially somebody like Draymond, but Draymond is not a, a number one guy. And I mean, when you pay someone a max salary, which, you know, depending on how he progresses in the next two years, he obviously could be that uh, for somebody, you know, if he decides that he wants to go for every penny, that he absolutely is a culture setter as far as, you know, the kind of passion he displays. And, you know, I think a lot of people readily acknowledge Steve Kerr and, you know, the Warriors included, that you you can't really change him much. And if you do, you run the risk of it kind of changing the dynamic of your team in, in a negative way. That you want what he gives you, even though it, uh, you know, it, it kind of comes with the sweet moments, but also the sour ones. But, you know, so he could, he could obviously make more money if, you know, if the Warriors decide they're not going to max him out and give him every penny that, you know, that he might be worth, he could test that and go somewhere else potentially, even though obviously the Warriors could obviously pay him more if he stayed um, than another team could. So there'd be some wiggle room there. But this is somebody that I don't think would go and, and be like a, a traditional number one player as far as like a number one option offensively. He obviously is very skilled offensively, but he has limitations that up until he started hitting a couple threes in the finals where, you know, teams were kind of taking advantage of and leaving him alone uh, on the perimeter. He's not someone that's really going to break people down off the dribble. We've seen for the vast majority of his career now that he's someone that has been in position to take advantage of four on threes, which is something that is very specific to the Warriors because of Steph Curry. And so 
he has incredible, incredible value, but we have to see, you know, one thing that I've, I've thought that's been really fascinating that somebody brought up, I can't remember who it was anymore. I really would like to credit them. It might've been Sean Hyken, actually. The idea that these guys that have won defensive player of the year, granted Draymond plays a different position, you know, traditionally than, than a lot of the other recent winners have, but the idea that you know, that these guys have fallen off really quickly. And I obviously just wrote a story about a month ago about Roy Hibbert. He didn't win Defense Player of the Year, but he came and runner up. And just how many of those guys have like not either maybe because of the point when they finished well in Defensive Player of the Year voting, but but also just that the league is changing so much for guys that protect the rim well and, you know, don't move their feet particularly well after, you know, a play at the rim or before a play at the rim. And kind of how you have to keep a really close eye on those guys because the league has changed so quickly. And so getting yourself into a situation where you max or potentially super max somebody like Draymond Green, you know, for someone that isn't a great shooter, you've got to be kind of careful with that. I mean, he's the one real big difference between him and your other three stars is that your other three stars, and I mentioned this in my story, will probably age pretty well because they – you know, they're, they're such great shooters in a league where shooting is a premium. Uh, you know, it comes at a premium. Draymond doesn't fit that box and check off that box. And so you've got to be careful with that. But also Draymond might realize, you know, as much as he wants his money, his skill set works perfectly there, whereas it doesn't really, you need so many other things to kind of make him work the way he works with another team. And so it'll be interesting to see that, you know, does Clay want to be a number one option for a team, a guy that really, you know, that averages more points per dribble than basically any player in the league. I think it was maybe him and Brooke Lopez coming into this season uh, from last year. Uh, but someone that can score 60 points without, you know, basically without dribbling uh, more than twice in a given play. And that, that's a rare sort of thing. And these are guys that might not fit perfectly as a, a, a clear-cut number one option for most teams, especially Draymond. So there, there might be that realization on their part. You know, the Warriors may kind of try to talk them into that as well. They obviously want to get extensions done with those guys just because it would save them a lot of money and a lot of money on the luxury tax. But but at, at the same time, you can't expect guys to take big, deep discounts forever, especially when they've done that before. You mentioned that Draymond, uh, you know, there was probably uh, some kind of hindsight and kind of talking about it in hindsight, which uh, is absolutely true. Uh, you know, we're not sure that he would have been able to get that kind of money, but it, it's, you know, it's it's meaningful for him to bring it up because I think it very much suggests that he's not going to be in discount mode uh, this time around, especially if they're coming off another title, especially if KD wins a third straight finals MVP because Draymond did have a really big part in convincing KD to come there, as we all know. So this is not going to be the next piece I write. I actually, sometimes due to my obligations, this is actually a piece I'm writing in July. I've actually scheduled this out, is going two years into the future. And I think if we're talking about Draymond Green's contract negotiations, that's really what you want to do. So for Green, this year, he's not designated veteran eligible. So that makes actually makes things easier for both sides. It makes it, it because the the amount the Warriors can offer, they can only add three years to his contract. I don't think that's necessarily worth it for him, though, though actually we'll see when I go through the rest of this exercise, it might end up being more worth it than he thinks. So you have that as, as an element because for extension system, if you're not designated veteran, it builds off of your previous salary, just like it does for Clay. But so I want to skip all the way two years into the future. So that will be Draymond will have just turned 30. It will have been his age 29 season, the way basketball reference does it, but he, he turns 30 after that point. And I'd say the number that I want to throw out there is four years and $146 million. Because at the current cap estimate, which is, again, really tentative this far out because that's a couple of years, we'll get a better estimate in a couple of weeks. That's the maximum amount that anybody else can offer green in terms of years and overall salary. And that's still a lot of money. That's about $36 million a year for four years. And so I think what's interesting with Draymond, I think he's going to be the guy that the Warriors play chicken with, is what they're going to say is, if you're good enough to be worth it, we will offer you like that kind of money. But they don't need to offer him more than that because their situation in all likelihood is going to be more desirable than every other situation is. So we've talked about this idea of guys taking less. What the bet might be with green especially considering the concerns about how he might age is the bet is we're so much of a better option that you don't have to take less but you're you, if you want to go somewhere else you're going to sacrifice in situation yeah no it's a big question i mean it, for a couple of reasons for him obviously because of like we just said kind of the the quality of life argument in a weird contorted way so i don't even as i say that it doesn't come off the tongue as well as i'd like uh, because obviously quality of life includes money and, and being totally comfortable, even though, like you said, 
that's generational wealth that you're setting somebody up with. But, you know, if, if, if Draymond could, could make substantially more from the Warriors, then obviously, you know, it would be to his benefit if they, if they give him that and if they can agree to a deal that gives him that and sets him up that way. And so there's going to be some frustration. I don't know if resentment is the right word, but frustration if, if he feels like they're lowballing him simply because they know, look, if we offer him this much, one dollar more than, you know, another team can, then we're, we offered him the most money. So he'd be crazy to turn us down. Like, yes, the world could work that way, but you know, obviously we know how much he could be getting from the Warriors and it could be more than that. So if we're looking at it that way, you know, Draymond will have decisions to make. And part of, part of it is this idea that if he leaves the Warriors, that they allow him to play such a role that, you know, he probably wouldn't be able to do that with really any other team, maybe one or two other teams. And who knows what each team will look like by that point. I, I'm not sure. But that's a pretty substantial difference. I mean, few teams really have the sort of lineups that you can just run out there with. And by the way, another thing that I'm interested in watching too is, is Iguodala because, uh, you know, Iguodala is someone who, you know, is already older than most of these guys. And Iguodala is someone that is really vastly important to what they do. Uh, we saw kind of the difference that in their offensive play, but also on defense from time to time. Uh, that game one outburst maybe doesn't happen if Iguodala is there and healthy from LeBron. And so it, it becomes interesting, you know, what Draymond's role is with the Warriors. But even if, if it changes somewhat, they kind of allow him to do something that most teams wouldn't allow him to do, that, that he would – Kind of, he's the key cog to what they do, but the Warriors might try to find a, a cheaper, you know, maybe less amazing version of Draymond, uh, if they had to, if for no other reason to save on a luxury tax bill, which is a very real thing, you know, maybe not to fans, but to owners, especially if the owners kind of feel like they develop the ability to say, look, we offered him the most money, but he turned us down because, you know, that way it, it allows them to save some face, really, even if they're not offering the absolute most they could, that they were still offering him the most that he could earn. And so it will become a very interesting argument. It could become a lot more convenient for the Warriors to walk away from it or to do what I just said, where they offer the most money, but if they're not offering the most they absolutely could. If Draymond's play really starts to decline in the next year and a half, uh, it, it will become a really interesting sort of argument, especially if the Warriors have won a third straight title. And then they go into that fourth year, even if they win, if they don't, you know, it, it becomes a very interesting argument because uh, a lot of people would tell you that if you have three of those four, no matter which three you have, that you should still either win a title or be in heavy, heavy contention to win a title. And it would be fascinating if Draymond is the one that they feel like they might be able to do without uh, because he's been such a key player in, in everything they've done. And like I said, he's a tone setter. We had B.J. Armstrong, uh, his agent, in our class the other day, one that I teach at Northwestern uh, a couple weeks ago, speaking to our students. And it was the day after Draymond got that technical foul in, in a game, uh, the first minute of a game against the Rockets. And B.J. was saying, like, I was watching that game, and I'll be honest, I represent Draymond. We're obviously very close, but there are times I look at Draymond, and I don't really know what the hell he's doing either as far as what he's trying to do. But he was like, but, you know, the thing is he – is playing a game within a game. He realizes that uh, if he can get under the opponent's skin, that no, it might not have a, a scoreboard effect. You know, you're not getting, as a matter of fact, it might have a negative scoreboard effect where maybe the other team gets a free throw out of it and, you know, gets an extra point out of it. But he's banking on the idea that that will do more damage to the other team than it will help them, you know, as far as getting under their skin or getting them to kind of play out of character. Uh, for enough time to where it benefits the Warriors. And that's an advantage that he gets, that he can develop that really no other player can in the way that he does it. And so Draymond is just really special in that way. And he might be the best player in the league at kind of getting under people's skin uh, in that way. And so he's very valuable in a way that you might not be able to quantify, uh, even if he is losing something athletically over time, even if he's not a great shooter. It's still early. I mean, he's just a young guy. But we've seen guys that kind of, with that sort of motor, that, that play at that level. And it, it, it's going to be a really interesting question to see how he ages. And even if he does begin to really show the tread on those tires, what is he worth to the Warriors and do they put their money where their mouth is? To go a little bit further on that idea, and I think that was a, a lot of really good points there, especially in terms of the question of how Draymond's going to age. To go forward again to that 2020 season, a couple of things will happen or have happened at that point. So one is the 1920 season, so the immediately preceding one, will be the Warriors' first season on the repeater tax, which is a dollar, basically an extra dollar for every dollar. So it can really add up depending on how the team is structured. That's a big thing. Second of all, 
that also is the same year that Andre Iguodala's contract expires. And depending on what they do with Sean Livingston's partial guarantee for 1920, the year Sean Livingston expires. And I I wrote a piece for The Athletic this week talking about how I don't have inside information, but my instinct on what Kevin Durant's going to do is actually paralleling what LeBron James did in almost exactly the same situation two years ago, which is that he will sign what is called a two plus one, meaning two years and then a player option for the third, which guess what would put Kevin Durant Durant as a free agent if he declines that option in 2020 as well. So what that situation might end up lending itself to, especially in certain ways if Clay extends, is this idea where that is the time for the Warriors to assess and possibly for some of those guys to go in other directions because there's nothing wrong with deciding like for Kevin Durant, I think that would be like he'd be 32, I think at that point. I think with him they'll they'll be more of like hey, whatever you want to do. But and would and then Draymond might depend on that. But so I like I think that's the preliminary like first end point on this conversation with where it might go. And some of it will depend on what those guys choose to do. And I mean Iguodala at that point I said his contract will expire. He'll be 36. So that's even if he wants to come back, he's a very different player at that point. Maybe somebody else has stepped up, either their first round pick, Jordan Bell, you know, whatever there are a lot of different ways this can go. But I think that's the inflection point that people should be thinking about a little bit with this. They might have more time than that. Who knows? But it might really be two years is where this is, depending on what Kevin Durant wants to do. And that makes this fascinating, too, because the Warriors are kind of bifurcated on Clay, Steph, and KD, and then everybody else, because the thing that ages the best for players is shooting. And so it'll be absolutely fascinating if that's how the negotiations turn as well, where the shooters are under contract and then the other guys, the defenders primarily, are not. Because maybe they'll try to replace those guys. You know, maybe Jordan Bell, you know, he's not Draymond Green, but, but you know, the defense when he plays center is actually, there are certain elements that are similar. They actually did that at a little bit in the finals where they had the, because Draymond got in foul trouble, they had the equivalent of a Draymond at center lineup, you know, it was the other guys were the same, but Jordan Bell was in that spot. So maybe they go with that sort of a conversation. Maybe one of the young guys they draft ends up being good enough to replace Iguodala. And so it's just kind of the, the like, not the bargain warriors because they'd still be super expensive, but maybe that's where this goes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, and think about it. They would have paid all of $3.5 million plus Jordan Bell's salary to, you know, which is a drop in the bucket compared to what you'd be talking about with Draymond for someone on this contract, um, you know, someone that they technically didn't even really draft, but paid the bull draft for them. So, I mean, that that's a pretty good deal if, if you can get it and if a guy shows himself to be worthy of that. Now, Jordan Bell is not the passer or the offensive playmaker that Draymond is. He's also, you know, for what the way I've knocked Draymond shooting over the course of this podcast, he's also not the shooter that Draymond is. So, obviously, and that's kind of the key here, and I, this is something that I mentioned in the story that I wrote about why this dynasty could play out differently than ones we've seen before is about Iguodala and the idea that, you know, if if you do start to see some really serious aging from him, which might not even be in the form of his ability to play, you know, and how he plays, but more so if he plays, you know, and the idea that, you know, guys become more injury prone, as we saw this playoff run, you, you really have to prioritize trying to find a replacement for him so that you, you have, you know, all of a sudden we look at that I refuse to call this lineup the Hampton stock. I really do. But, you know, you, you have this lineup uh, of your death lineup, basically, and you run five guys out there, and all of a sudden Iguodala isn't really the same player anymore. Uh, so now you're down to four guys, and you've got to kind of find a replacement for him. And then all of a sudden, if you're talking about, you know, trying to find a way to replace Draymond at some point, uh, you've got to – I mean, he's probably really hard to find a replacement for, but you've got to kind of work to do that as well. Um, not just because of what he does defensively, which is what I think you're saying about Bell and kind of the idea that, you know, maybe he progresses to where he can really fill that role and has done it before, maybe not quite as well, but has done it before. And you've got to find a way to replace the stuff that Draymond does on offense, which is so critical uh, because of what I said before. And, you know, the idea that the four on threes or the three on twos that he's running uh, off of those pick and rolls that he's running with Seth. And so those become really big questions. And all of a sudden, even if you've got, the three best shooters from that group of five, you know, and, and some people would say that the three best players, you've still got two huge holes to fill just because that has been kind of the crux of what you do that nobody else can match, or at least that most teams can't match the NBA. And I think teams are still trying to figure out how to really match that firepower, you know, as, as good as the Rockets were and as, as well as they played and how close they were to winning that series. They weren't playing against a full strength Warriors team. And obviously the, the Rockets were not a full strength either without Chris Paul. 
maybe even big, bigger injury uh, to them than, than what the Warriors had suffered with, with Iguodala. But the truth is they, they weren't having to play against the lineup that traditionally has given teams the most trouble. So it'll be fascinating to watch how they go about doing that. You know, the, the Warriors have pretty much groomed, you know, lower cost versions of all these guys very well, considering where they've gotten them from. Uh, you look at the idea that Quinn Cook, you know, Quinn is not Steph Curry by any means, but he, he did very, very well for a guy that, you know, that they'd kind of gotten as a two-way. You know, you think about a guy like Patrick McCaw, who was hurt, obviously, for a lot of that time, but he's done very well. Jordan Bell had a really nice season. They've obviously gotten huge value out of JaVale McGee, you know, more than I ever imagined really on the defensive end. But obviously, uh, when we saw what the Warriors were doing and the way that they were attacking these really overly ambitious switches from Cleveland and, and even the traps, the way that they were doing that, how valuable these role guys became, uh, these guys who were slipping screens became in, in this last series. And so they've gotten incredible value out of everybody. Um, and guys have kind of been, I won't say totally interchangeable, because like I said, we saw Iguodala and kind of how his absence was really hurting the Warriors for a while. But uh, they've gotten good value out of these guys. But at some point, you'd have to have someone really step up and really just take over an entire role that somebody was playing, not just for a few games, but for the whole season if you're going to decide to move on from somebody and not pay them. And so that, that'll become a massive question. And, and, you know, I think will give us really good insight into uh, just how dynastic this team is as far as, you know, how long do they stretch into the future as a champion, um, depending on who they let go or, you know, if everybody can continue to play at the level that they have for the last few years. Lots more to talk about with Chris Herring, but I want to take a moment to tell you about our friends at Simple Contacts. Simple Contacts is awesome because it is a very effective in terms of time and money solution to something that is just challenging for many of us as we live through our lives. I happen to wear glasses, but not contacts, but I went through the entire Simple Contacts the vision test and was really impressed with the way that it works, the intuitiveness. They actually caught something with the way that I did it. I had a, a space constraint with the room I was in and they're like, hey, we didn't have good enough information to properly evaluate you and I had to redo it, which was great. I love that kind of diligence and a- attention to detail. And it's such a huge savings of time and money because you can renew your prescription and reorder your brand from anywhere in minutes. The vision test is only $20 and if that annual appointment can cost you over $200 and you have to go into a doctor time out for depending on what work schedule you have, you can do that. The vision test is self-guided, takes less than five minutes. Even if you have to do it twice, like I did, still doesn't take that long. And it's designed by doctors and licensed ophthalmologists that review every test. So you can make sure that everything's right. They simply, and then once you have your test done, they have all the brands of lenses that you're familiar with. They make sure that your customers are 100%, 100% satisfied. That includes options for astigmatism, multifocal lenses, colored contacts, everything like that. And so if you want to check it out, and you certainly should, go to simplecontacts.com slash realgm or enter the code realgm. You can do it either way, which is really cool. Either way, you get $30 off your order. So you can use the URL simplecontacts.com slash realgm or realgm at checkout either way. And look at it. I mean, it's a really amazing product. I'm so happy it exists. And I should note that it is not a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam, but it's an amazing process. Check it out. Simplecontacts.com slash real GM. I also want to tell you about Hims, and I'm really happy to have Hims as a sponsor because they are attacking a problem that is preventable and doing it in a way that makes complete sense to me. So two thirds of men lose their hair by the age of 35. I'm getting dangerously close to that threshold, so I am very aware of it. And Hims is focused on the idea that it is so much easier to keep the hair you have than replace the hair you've lost. And so what you can do is get well-known generic equivalents to name brand prescriptions to help you keep your hair. They connect you with real doctors and medical grade solutions to treat hair loss. Don't have to deal with waiting rooms, doctor visits, and it's cost-effective, convenient products are, sh- are shipped directly to your door. So you can check it out. Go to forhims.com slash real, R-E-A-L. And you can get a trial month of hymns for just $5 while supplies last. Check out the website for full details. Again, that is forhims.com slash real. Hymns, a wellness brand for men. And what you're getting into in terms of support players, I think, is is a fascinating conversation with not only this Warriors team, but where the league is going. And 
so you talk about the Warriors with, with how they were able to make guys like JaVale work and, and all these other pieces, and that also influences how they use the remaining what I call team-building tools, which for the Warriors are limited because of how much money they spend. So that's really the tax pyramid level if they choose to use it, whatever draft picks they have, and then minimum contracts. So you have that. But then think about a team like Houston as well. So Houston, what one of the things that Maury did, which I think deserves a lot more attention than it has gotten, is not the Chris Paul trade though that was great and you know taking advantage of that opportunity is how they got James Harden and how all of this happened in the first place but understanding okay we need to use our remaining money the assets that we have to go after players that since we have this ceiling that can play in those series and so PJ Tucker a good example of that getting in Bob Mute for the minimum was absolutely insane so he did a good job with that and even with Bob Mute's injury and then they eventually got Gerald Green which ended up working out better than I think any of us could have anticipated especially he had some really nice defensive moments in the Western Conference Finals, yeah, which so shocked me. So what I so what I think was so telling about that is is going at it hard with that approach of saying, okay, we don't want to spend any of our primary resources on players that are just like regular season filler, and that worked out really well for the Rockets. And so. I mean, who knows where that goes? You know, there is this outside chance that LeBron James opts in and goes there. But let's say there is a coalescing in L.A. Will the Lakers take that same lesson and go, well, I mean, all we're going to probably have outside of those kind of things is the room mid-level, making sure that they use the room mid-level on somebody who could theoretically play in a series against the Warriors and the Rockets. Because that kind of single-minded management is the only way to amass enough talent to really compete with these teams, even though it's about the stars, because any structural weak point can kill you against opponents that are this good. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's kind of where we're at. And um, I think that's kind of what's surprising about the Rockets. I'll, I'll be really honest, watching the way that the Warriors kind of dispatched of everybody last year, you know, granted, they didn't have to play uh, against the Rockets last year. And so the way that they kind of dispatched of everybody I look at that situation and I was surprised that the Rockets, you know, granted, they added Chris Paul. Chris Paul is going to cover a lot of your flaws and he's going to amplify a lot of what you do, you know, and it, it makes the people that kind of question the, the pairing between Harden and Paul, uh, look a little bit silly because, the, you know, it worked so well. Even if people didn't like watching them play and there were a lot of people that didn't, you know, Chris Paul, look at what he was able to do against Utah and kind of how he was able to take advantage of the fact that Utah was daring the Rockets to kind of take shots from that mid-range level. And Chris Paul is happy to do that because he's arguably the best mid-range shooter in the game and has been for a while. But the fact that the Rockets were able to kind of retool and re-up in a way where they not only added Chris Paul, but like you said, Lucumba Mute, and you, you look at that and you look at P.J. Tucker, who was massive in that series against the Warriors, and really – I feel like every other play was just ripping a rebound away from Kevin Durant, just playing a lot bigger than he actually is as far as a stature, which is kind of what he does for a living. They were able to really kind of counterpunch the Warriors as far as lineups and and really weren't even doing it at full strength. Obviously, Chris Paul was, was hurt and, uh, you know, might have cost him the series, his injury. But Mbamute, Mute, for instance, too, the fact that he – it wasn't really clear if he'd ever really fully recovered from an injury he had – uh, was it early in the playoffs or really late in the regular season? But, you know, he just was kind of brutal around the rim in that series. And so he was not playable at times. And Mike D'Antoni kind of pulled him off the court for a couple of games there. But, that, I mean, their ability – and they might have been one of the only teams that could do this. I kind of felt like the Spurs would have been able to do this too if they had gotten Chris Paul last year. Because uh, I kind of felt like that just would have been a, a beautiful marriage between them. You know, assuming a Kawhi Leonard would have been healthy, that would have been a good fit for them because Tony Parker was aging. You know, Murray was going to be a really young guy coming in. and You didn't necessarily know how good he was going to be, although he had a good season as a rookie. But I, I felt like there were only so many teams that were within striking distance of the Warriors to begin with. And for the Rockets to have been there, they really had a, a nice, nice offseason. And even into the season, like you said, picking up Gerald Green. And so that becomes an interesting thing. It's like, how well do these teams kind of make these moves that could get them closer to the Warriors? But given how much money it takes to even be competitive with the Warriors in the first place, the fact that you've really got to spend these resources wisely. And the Warriors now are in that same position, too, as the gap between them uh, and other teams begins to close, just based on the fact that the Warriors are going to start getting older. And frankly, this is what Steve Kerr has kind of warned about, the fact that they're going to get more complacent and that they're going to have more lulls. 
going forward because it's really hard to sustain winning at this level and have this sort of success when everybody's gunning for you constantly, you know, and, and not getting complacent. It's going to be fascinating to see how the Warriors spend that money and how they decide to allocate it. And on that same token, it's going to be fascinating to see how the teams that are realistically within striking distance, you know, I would probably put Boston in that group and teams like that, you know, the Philly is going to be coming in the next couple of years, figuring out what they're doing. How do these teams kind of make sure that they're not making a, a costly killer decision that really hurts them now that they are kind of getting within range of being able to compete against a team like this for a single game, for seven games, what have you. But uh, but it's going to be fascinating to see the way these teams kind of decide to make these decisions. Yeah, and what might end up being the kind of clarifying element here is the separation between the regular season and the playoffs. So I know, and uh, it's been talked about a little bit, Kerr brought it up in his piece with, I think it was with Anthony Slater, and it came up a little bit on the low post as well, that there were times in the regular season where he got really, really frustrated because they just weren't bringing it. They were flat. There was that game against Indiana where they got completely run out of the gym. They got trucked by the Jazz, numerous other games. But what that led to was this question about, oh, well, do the Warriors, especially defensively, do they still have their fastball? Like, do they still have it, especially that was with Draymond Green and with Andre Guadalla, because those two guys are so central to what the Warriors do defensively. And lo and behold, when it got into the playoffs, they brought it, you know. And something that might end up being the story here is that maybe they can only bring it kind of like LeBron did defensively back in the 2016 finals. He really brought it defensively for about five games of that series. He was unbelievable in those five games, and the Cavs won the title in no small part because of that. And so maybe what the Warriors become is this team that kind of, they lollygag a little bit in the regular season. They'll still win a bunch of games if they're healthy because they just have so much offensive talent and they have, and you know, they can engage like if a game is close with five minutes to go, they'll go, okay, let's, let's put a little bit more into this. And it'll probably drive Kerr insane if that's where this ends up going, but it could end up saving, like giving, giving those guys a little bit more juice for the end of the season. And that would be such a, a fascinating kind of end game with this. Because that is an underreported part of the story in 2016. Yes, Steph Curry got hurt and all that other stuff. But that team was younger. That team was fiery. They got up for every single game. The reason they won 73 that year was because they went after it every single night, including games when they could have just said, oh, we're down 15-20, let's just pack it in. So it was on both sides, the beginning and the end. And so that's why they won 73. They were better than almost everybody else, and they tried every game. And so it would be funny to see almost that same group of core guys go exactly in the opposite direction of, we don't need to go for every game because the only games that matter are at the, are at the end. And the reason that they would do that is because the 16th season, everything went ideally, basically, in the regular season. Curry gets hurt, they end up, you know, and they lose the finals. And I think they kind of, I haven't talked with the players about this, they don't want to talk about this, that almost everything other than losing game seven of the finals went the way they wanted. And I think I saw them the next day for exit interviews, they looked kind of hollow. And some of that is the recency bias of, hey, this is what just happened. But if the takeaway from that was, all we want are titles, they can play the season that way, and it would be very, very different. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, they've wrecked the hell out of our, uh, you know, of our projection system because of that. I mean, they, they, I don't know that they flip a switch necessarily. I mean, I, I actually think a lot of this season, I think they were trying. And you saw at one point, I was actually there. Whenever they came to Phoenix that last week of the season, they were coming off a game. Oh, it was against Indiana. They came off a game where Steve Kerr just ripped them and basically said there was no effort that night. And uh, they came to Phoenix and, you know, in between those two games, actually was at both games, now that I think about it, on the road. Steve Kerr said that Kevin Durant was pretty vocal in saying we were trying. And so I actually kind of agree. Like you saw that the Warriors were really loath to actually say that we weren't trying. It was actually that, you know, they're playing without Steph. You know, the season had gotten to them, I think, a little bit. The grind had kind of worn on them. But I also think that the Warriors, they get really KD-centric when Steph isn't there. I mean, it's not a secret. You know, he kind of develops a lot of the, the OKC tendencies that he had before. You know, really, if we want to take a step further, kind of like the OKC tendencies when he was playing and Russ was out injured, uh, where he just, you know, his usage rate just skyrockets. He becomes a guy that averages 45 points per 100 possessions and still does it relatively efficiently at, at that level. But it's just something where, you know, the team doesn't normally play that way. Um, Steph, even when he's in a groove, is still moving the ball, is still uh, looking to get other people involved, even if it's just kind of a, uh, give and go sort of play that where he dashes to the corner 
Katie is different because Katie will just kind of lock in on a play and, you know, decide that he's going to look for a shot for himself. And when you do that, that pigeonholes Clay Thompson a little bit into having to find his own shot. And a lot of times you'll see plays where Clay will just kind of hunt his own shot. And it looks totally unnatural because he's used to being involved every other play. You know, Draymond all of a sudden doesn't have the same level of involvement because Draymond is used to kind of coming down and having those four-on-threes from the free-throw line on down. You know, you look at the guys that are normally roll men, and all of a sudden they're not involved because KD is looking for one-on-ones. And so I think that was kind of a function of what it was more, and that these guys actually were trying, but they were kind of, you know, kind of ramming their head into a wall trying to make it work because they were going through KD without Steph there. So it's interesting because I, I think that, they do kind of have the latitude when they're totally healthy to not play as hard as they could and to kind of take some nights off and, you know, still win sometimes because of that, occasionally lose games because of that. Uh, but when they aren't totally healthy, you have certain guys trying to win games for them in a way that's not really natural to them. And so for both of those reasons, they lose a lot more games than some other teams, like the Rockets, for instance. And it was really funny because, you know, we get slammed if I'm three. I'll just go on record. I have no bearing on anything as far as our projection systems. I'm not good enough at math to run systems like that anyway. Um, but we, you know, I, I tweeted out at one point that the Sixers were given a better chance probability of winning the title than the Warriors were in our, with our, within our system within the last couple weeks of the season. And the system has a recency bias where it kind of teams that are on a really long winning streak can accumulate a lot of points in our system. Teams that aren't playing particularly well can lose a lot of points in our system very quickly, especially if they're losing to teams that aren't that good or aren't that dominant. And so that was kind of a function of that. But also, and we've said this, we've got on record as saying this, like our system doesn't have a way of taking into account injuries. And our system also doesn't really have a way to wait for the fact that, you know, that the Cavs and the Warriors seemingly have this switch that they can flip. And I'll go further in saying that, like, LeBron kind of has a switch that he can flip, not necessarily the Cavs, because I think most of those guys were trying, but LeBron, you know, his effort, especially when you look back at January, was really all over the place. And I think Nate Duncan just wrote about that a little bit with regards to his kind of all no-defense teams um, the other day. And so so it's, it, it's fascinating. I mean, I think if you keep this core together, they could be a 45-1 team and still have a chance of, of – you know, getting to the finals and winning the whole thing just because, you know, we did see that home court probably does matter a little bit. You know, they did beat the Rockets, but had to really nickel and dime their way the last couple of games of the series to do that. But I think we can assume that they'd probably have an easier time against most teams uh, outside of the Rockets. So they could do this for years. You know, I think it takes a toll to do it. And I think it, you know, kind of this uh, magic trick that they do to kind of you know, if you've ever seen the prestige where you, you get yourself out, you've, you've got your hands tied behind your back and you're in the deep tank of water and you, you know, they put the, the cape over the, the big tank of water and then all of a sudden you find your way out less than a minute later before you drown. Uh, the Warriors could do that for the next two years. Uh, I think it takes a lot of work to kind of get yourself in that space where you are getting yourself out of trouble and finding your way out. Uh, at the end and, you know, getting fitted for a ring the next season. Uh, I think that's challenging to do that year after year. But this this is a group of talent that I don't know that we've ever seen this much talent on one team all in their prime. Uh, so they, they could do it, but it, it will be a challenge to keep winning at this level. And I think Steve Kerr knows that. I think Clay knows that. I think Draymond knows that, which is why these guys have all talked about you know, the precious nature of winning the way they have. But I do think that other factors get in the way. Uh, jealousy can be one of them, and I don't necessarily know that that's there just yet. But but the idea of money can get in the way, and the idea of credit can get in the way. And, you know, I think a lot of credit goes to Steve Kerr, the idea that he doesn't seem to really be hungry for any of that stuff. Maybe, maybe money. And I think that's why they're going to talk about, you know, uh, renegotiating his contract. But, but in terms of, like, who gets the credit for winning or how much credit he deserves for them winning, a lot of that stuff has been absent in this title run. And so, I mean, this is just an unusual team in a lot of different ways. But it's going to be interesting to see how they hold all this stuff together long term. Lots more to talk about with Chris, but I want to take a moment to give you a message from our friends at TrueCar. If you are looking to buy a car, you are probably familiar with terms like MSRP. You might even know what it stands for, but what does it actually mean? The same goes for invoice, list price, dealer price. It's enough to confuse anybody. All you are really looking for is a price that actually means something. Introducing True Price from True Car. Now you can know exactly what you'll pay for the car you want, including fees and accessories, before you even get to the dealership. True Car dealers will show you the true price on cars like the one you want, all from the comfort of home. 
And how do you know if your true price is a great price? Because True Car shows you what other people paid for that same car you want. And your certified dealers know this, so they set their true price competitively so they can win your business. So when you're ready to buy a new or used car, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. I also want to remind you quickly about the survey that's still going around. It is designed to gather audience demographics for sales purposes. So you go to podcastone.com slash my survey, or you just go to podcastone.com and click on the survey banner. Helps keep the show free to download. Minimal ads shouldn't take you more than five minutes. And it's short and of course, completely anonymous. So you can do Real Jam Radio, do me a big favor and Podcast One, of course, by filling it out. Thanks for supporting the show and thanks for taking the time to do it. And certainly Curry is at the center of a lot of that. And I mean, going back to Tim Kawakami's piece about the meeting in the Hamptons and Curry basically saying, yeah, I want you aboard, even though Curry had just been the unanimous MVP of the league and saying, you know, like, hey, we can win a bunch of games. Is that what that's important as a tone setter? And I'm sure some of that is is boiling below the surface for guys, but they can't make it as public because, you know, the tone setter isn't going that way. And you brought up the Warriors kind of flailing when they were trying, especially late in the season. And I I think that's a really good point in terms of thinking about Stephen Curry's value to this team. So one of my favorite stats from this year is that Curry and Durant together, the Warriors had a 121.7 offensive rating, which is completely insane. Then when it was just KD, when Curry wasn't playing, which happened a lot this year because Curry missed a bunch of time, that dropped to about 109. And then when Curry was on the floor without KD, it was about 116. So, you know, they did, they just didn't have that same level. And that isn't to say, you know, Curry is everything for this offense. Part of it is that the Warriors don't have a Curry replacement at all. So they can, they can kind of MacGyver different fixes for Kevin Durant because that's basically what Harrison Barnes was. And they can't really do that for Curry because there isn't a, there isn't really like an 80% discount Curry in the league, much less on this roster. And so. I think that it is worth considering that they could, you know, that they'll be able to score, I think, with these kind of lineups for a long time. And where I wanted to go with that is what I think the Warriors and Rockets have done is fundamentally changed the conversation for what it takes to win a championship. Because these teams are both really, really good offensively. I mean, one and two in the league, the Rockets were number one this year, but also strong defensively. And so I think what it's done is I was very skeptical last year, and I do think San Antonio would have taken a couple games from the Warriors, including game one in that Western Conference Finals in 2017 if Kawhi hadn't gotten hurt. But I was skeptical that they were going to win the series because I didn't think they could score enough. And so what I think the Warriors and Rockets have done is, at least during this iteration, but I think that if teams get built in their image moving forward, is the idea that you have to be in that top, I don't know, top six, top five in terms of offensive capability. Maybe not overall offensive rating because that involves a lot of other things. But I think you need to be in that sort of conversation because you, there are going to be nights where you just can't stop those teams. And so you have to be able to outscore them, you know, once or twice in a seven game series to make it viable. And so I wonder how that's going to filter into some of these as well, because if you need a little bit more offense to even survive against them, you know, like Boston, I think would have made life a lot harder on the Warriors defensively than sure. even, certainly than the Cavs did and maybe even in the Rockets after Chris Paul got hurt. But that's, yeah, good. But they still wouldn't have been able to score, and so I wonder how that's going to affect the way that if the if the Lakers end up getting these guys, them, if it's the Sixers or whoever else, because you can't go through those dry spells and expect to win many games. No, that's that's a huge part of this, and I mean it's why you know I, I still think you know even though you've got teams that are going to kind of reap the benefits of having, well, it's horrible to say, but of having tanked really this season, you probably will still have a number of teams that do it even as they level out the the odds of winning the number one pick starting next year. Because the Warriors, and, and even if it's not the Warriors, the Warriors, the Rockets, the Celtics, whoever gets LeBron next year, all are going to be in play for the next couple of years probably of winning a title. And it probably, like very likely, I mean, the NBA has been this way for a long time where there's really only so many teams that have a real shot. But it's it's extremely true right now. You know, a lot of people feel like the Warriors are unbeatable. I would not argue that after having watched what the Rockets did. But with that in mind, a lot of teams are going to decide that they should just wait this out. And that kind of makes sense just because of the fact that if you don't have a true superstar or at least a really, really high-level star and a very good defense around him, and I think I would probably say that about Kyrie. I don't know that I would call Kyrie a superstar in part because of what the Celtics were able to do without him. I think Brad Stevens was responsible for a ton of that. 
I think Al Horford deserves way more credit than he gets from the average person, you know, but without Hayward or Kyrie, they did that with a bunch of young players that granted they are, are super talented. It's not to take anything away from these guys, most of whom are top three picks. But uh, I mean, young teams don't just do that without having like a, a star superstar sort of talent within one of those young players that we were just talking about. So the fact that they're able to do that, I, you know, I think Kyrie is a star. I don't, I don't know that I'll go as far as to say he's a superstar. I, I kind of save that for guys that I think might be top five players in the league, and I'm not sure he is one. But if you don't have one of those guys that can kind of stop you from going in a four- or five-minute drought without scoring, uh, like you said, I don't know that you really have much of a chance. And even if you do have one, like, you know, we look at somebody like Giannis in Milwaukee, uh, and they've played some really competitive games with Golden State over the years. They obviously broke the streak a couple of years ago. Uh, I actually wrote a story last year about the teams and kind of the prototypes that have the best chance of ending this dynasty and mentioned Milwaukee in that story, basically saying that Milwaukee actually has a lot of the elements that you would hope a team would in trying to take down a team like Golden State because of just the length and the versatility they have. It's just that they kind of don't know how to use it. And a lot of that was Jason Kidd's scheme. And a lot of it was just that, like, you know, in some ways they actually are what Golden State is, minus the fact that they have kind of a game-breaking shooter like Steph Curry, and that they don't have quite as much perimeter shooting, just that they're not as reliable shooting the ball as a team like Golden State. It's a huge if and a huge difference. But, um, you know, they that's a team that would be an example, an interesting matchup, because I think, Golden State would have their hands full trying to guard Giannis and that they, you know, they have guys that could make life difficult on the other end. Uh, Middleton would probably fare decently in a series against Golden State. But uh, when it comes down to it, they just have too many droughts. I mean, we saw it against the Celtics in that Celtics series where the Celtics would just go on these runs. And, uh, you know, part of that has to do with the way that they were coached as well, Milwaukee. So, so we'll see. I mean, it, you, you really don't have much of a chance of beating them in a series if you don't have a guy that can stop you from going in one of those four or five minute scoring droughts. Uh, even if it's someone that can just get to the line consistently so that you're scoring and not just getting, you know, these 11 to 2, 13 nothing runs that the Warriors are so good at. And Baxter Holmes wrote a great piece about that recently. You, you really need guys that can stop Golden State from doing that because, you know, they have one or two of those and it's game over. It's lights out. Something that I think Houston added into the template facing the Warriors, and part of the reason it doesn't happen so much is because it requires so much physical energy, is the consistency that they tried ball denying and just getting in the way. I mean, Cleveland has done a lot of the grabbing and holding off the ball basically the entire tenure because it totally works in the playoffs because refs don't call a lot of off-ball grabbing in the playoffs. But Houston was doing something that San Antonio had done against them the year before. And a big part of how San Antonio won that series was just making it harder. And Kevin Durant in particular, which is funny considering he used to play with James Harden, who also has this problem, they can just get ball denied. They don't fight through it as much and it ta- sometimes it takes some extra time. And so the Warriors were starting some of their like big actions and plays with six, seven, eight seconds on the shot clock. And so so then the, the clock itself became an extra defender. Sometimes they were getting into circumstances, Steph does this, where he was, instead of kind of dribbling towards the center of the floor where you have options on both sides, he was going to the corner and then they were trapping him or he just didn't have as many angles. And so I think teams can do that more against the Warriors. I think especially as they age, there will become more opportunities. But the problem is it requires such a consistency of effort. And we've already talked about the skill level threshold that you need to beat a team like the Warriors and the Rockets. So you're not only asking for the best players in the league, but you're asking for the best players to actually work incredibly hard for as many minutes as they can play. I mean, it's it's, it's that. I mean, and you, you hinted at this, obviously, um, and you're saying it'll become easier as they age. I mean, even then, it, yeah, because you, you figure Steph and, and Katie and, and Clay will become a little bit less mobile as they get older, but you still, even with that, because of the shooting ability, uh, you're going to have so much base to cover defensively, and it's just, it's, a, it's such a chore. But beyond that, I think LeBron hit on this best, as we saw with J.R. Smith in game game one through four, really, not just his, his boneheaded mistake at the end of game one, but obviously defensively. I mean, J.R., if you could keep the mistake he made at the end of game one in play, but then erase all his defensive mistakes, Cleveland might have been better off than they were. I mean, so basically... Well, I guess he made mistakes on all on all those situations, but basically, like Cleveland could have won two of those games, even in spite, you know, of Jr.'s first mistake. If you take away the mistakes he made in terms of just getting lost on screens and switches, not communicating well, Jr. is a horrible off-ball defender. And I I think, you know, in my opinion, that LeBron was kind of alluding to Jr. and his mistakes over the course of the series. 
as needing a certain requisite IQ level to play against this team and to beat this team. And defensively, more than anything, and you know, having an, an identification of what sorts of things are coming and where screens are going to be coming from and who's going to screen for whom. And the Celtics, you know, they played two really competitive teams against the Warriors during the regular season. And I even tweeted during one of them, I think the last time they played was in January, and I think I said something to the effect of like, you know, watching this game against the Warriors, the, the, the Celtics are playing, it kind of makes you want to see this, the Warriors play against a team that can defend them better in the finals. Obviously, LeBron is LeBron, and the entertainment value that comes with watching him play against an all-time great team is very, very high. But in the grand scheme of things, if, if you can't defend the Warriors, what chance do you really have of beating them? And I always go back to this. If you go back to last year's finals, I think the Cavs scored 113 or more in four out of those five games and still only won one of them. At that point, you realize, and, and Zach Lowe has said this repeatedly now, he feels like the, the Cavs had an all-time great offense last year. And statistically, there's there's enough to kind of validate that. And obviously, Kyrie and LeBron. Kevin Love has good moments, and you've got other guys that when they're on are hitting a bunch of shots as well. But when that's not enough, it tells you that your defense isn't being very impactful. And, you know, the Warriors are happy to play a shootout with you, and that was kind of what Draymond got into the back and forth with about Mike D'Antoni heading into this past season was that the idea that if the Rockets were content to make every single game a shootout, that the Warriors would probably win those. But basically Draymond came into the season saying, like, that's fine, we – but, you know, at some point you're going to have to lock in and play defense. The, the Rockets showed that they could do that. And the last few games of that series against the Rockets were kind of knockdown, drag out games that didn't even get into the 100s. And uh, I never saw that coming, but the Rockets found ways to do that. So, you know, going forward, you're going to have to be able to defend them. And, uh, you know, I think the Celtics do that. Really, I think the Jazz do that very well, too. Um, the Jazz are just probably an example of a team that doesn't have quite enough offense. And why we thought Hayward would be so damaging to you know him having left Utah. You know, they, they might be able to add pieces going forward or kind of figure out something going forward. But, you know, I've, I've seen people, and I think every fan base has an element of this, like, what if LeBron came to our team? And I've seen a handful of people do that, basically saying, like, what if he maneuvered his way to a team like Utah? They'd be fascinating because they already defend at a dominant level. They can score on offense, especially when guys have it going. They have a young uh, kind of budding star and Donovan Mitchell. They have a guy that is unselfish at Ricky Rubio. You know, they have a, a, a good pick and roll man and Gobert. They have a, you know, a secondary ball handler and Ingles who uh, has a, a, a little bit of Iguodala to his game. I mean, obviously different players, but, you know, kind of the role he's asked to play in the secondary ball handling and a better shooter than Iguodala and can defend and can switch. And so, you, you have some teams out there that are very, very interesting. Like if you were to add a really elite player into the mix, uh, we've talked about the Spurs before and what kind of impact Chris Paul would have had had he gone there. You know, and LeBron has kind of been talked about. Spurs have been kind of a dark horse just because of his relationship with Pop. So, I mean, there are teams there that would become very interesting if you threw an elite talent into the mix that they already have. They, they all seem very unlikely, but it has to be a team that can defend to really push and challenge the Warriors or even the Rockets for that matter, I think. I don't know if you've heard me tell this before, but one of my favorite kind of team building stats is that other than the Pistons, and that's a big carve out because they've won three titles during this time period, the last NBA team to win a championship without a player who had already won an MVP, a regular season MVP award, was the 81 Celtics. And the 81 Celtics had Larry Bird. He just hadn't won an MVP yet. Wow. And, and so... Incidentally, I talked about that in a Celtics piece because it gives you an idea of just how this works. And remember, like a lot of awards, it can be done after the fact. You know, it's not like that has already won it. Again, if you were counting would eventually win, I think you have to go back to like 79 or something like that. And I really like what Ainge has done with the Celtics. But that's kind of my question is can they – so the argument is either like so maybe through internal improvement, one of the guys they already have can get to that level. I mean, Kyrie was an all-NBA player this year or deserved it. He got hurt, so he didn't get it it and but all nba and mvp are not the same thing maybe they can get it internally or maybe that's the argument for them making another move is is getting that other guy so i'm fascinated to see where that goes whether that kind of nba truism has held but when you think about the three teams that got the closest to winning a championship this year to me that would be the rockets the warriors and the Cavs. all three of them fit that bill because harden assuming harden wins the mvp this year which he will yeah no it's an interesting argument i mean that that's kind of where I was at, I didn't come in thinking that the Celtics had a good chance to win the championship anyway, at least not this past year. You figure it was going to be year one of a new experiment with Kyrie and Hayward and then Hayward gets hurt. And 
you know, I actually went as far as to say I don't I'm not totally sold on the fact that the Celtics make the playoffs anymore without Hayward, which, you know, in hindsight looks really stupid. But then again, I think a lot of us were made to look stupid because I don't think most of us thought that the Celtics would have much chance of getting to the finals once Irving was out either. And then they obviously uh, came within a game of doing that and had multiple chances to do that. So, you know, the the Celtics are interesting because they, they don't have an example of someone that has done that. I think it would be a little tough for Kyrie to win it. Maybe he could. I mean, we saw this year that that is very much a team that can build a top-ranked defense around him without him even being there. Or, you know, with, with him being out, they, they obviously can clamp down even more. And it will be, be become an interesting issue. You know, people are already making the rumblings. I, I uh, saw the report that was out there, I think, from Chris Mannix maybe about the idea that the Celtics are already weary of the fact that, you know, whether Irving wants to stay or, you know, the idea that, you know, they're worried that he might not – if he's not going to sign the extension, which why would he do that? That, uh, that he might bolt and go somewhere else in free agency. And a lot of people see it as kind of maneuvering kind of an exit strategy in case they want to fall back on Rozier, the, the idea that they could do that at a cheaper level and kind of build a team in a different direction because they saw how, how far they can go without Irving. And so it'll be interesting because, you know, that team doesn't have, again, a superstar talent, but they do they are so balanced and they are coached so well and they do have enough star power and enough star talent. The, the interesting thing for me this year becomes a good question of how do different players' roles change now that they get everybody back healthy? Uh, Tatum in particular. Yeah, that's a great point. In particular. It's going to be fascinating to watch. But the Celtics are really, really interesting for that reason because they kind of are in this tweener phase in several different instances. But they're also coached at a level that is just, you know, I don't know how many guys coach as well as Brad Stevens does. It's fascinating. Yeah, let me be unambiguous about this. The Celtics have the talent to be the exception to the statement I just made. Like they, they are good enough to do that. It's just going to be an interesting question to see whether, you know, exceptions are exceptions for a reason, whether they can actually pull it off. I want to give you, because we have to head out in a minute, do you want to take a minute to talk about the Kevin Durant shoe piece? <laughs> I mean, just really quickly, it was so much fun to work on. I, it was so nerve-wracking to, uh, to try to – a couple of the Warriors reporters knew I was out there working on it. Uh, that was why I was actually out there in Phoenix and in Indiana to talk to Kevin about it. Uh, their, their equipment manager, Eric Housen. But it was so much fun to work on. I, I spent a couple weeks kind of pinpointing which games. I, I was pretty confident he lost a shoe in, going through – uh, arduous amounts of, uh, social media mentions to try to figure out, you know, big flurries of social media activity around the idea of the words shoe, fall off Durant, pinpointing which nights that had happened and then going back and watching those games fully and coming across 30, 31 examples time that we wrote the story, uh, and finding video instances of all of them. And Durant thought the piece was hilarious. It was a lot of fun to work on. I initially was just going to do a shorter piece on it about five for 538. And then the magazine like begged me. They're like, no, this is a great piece. You've got to do it uh, for ESPN, the magazine. So I did it. And then ironically, because the series ran long with Houston and the idea that the magazine wasn't sure who was going to advance in that series, they ended up not running in the magazine. So we may repurpose it for a season preview for the, the magazine. But uh, so much fun to work on and so much cooperation with so many people that I asked for help with it, including Nick DePaula, who was really helpful in terms of the sneaker that aspect of it. So I appreciate him helping me work on it. But thanks for allowing me to plug that a little bit. Oh, I really enjoyed it. I wanted to make sure that you got the chance. But thank you so much for taking time. Pleasure as always to talk to you. Thanks so much, Ben. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Chris Herring for taking the time to come on. You can read him at 538 and ESPN. Lots of great work everywhere. I highly encourage you to read everything he does. I, I like the idea that he generally takes a little bit more time and takes it makes something really fleshed out and i look forward to everything he does especially because it can sometimes come out of nowhere like the durant shoe piece though for me as somebody who's worked with anthony slater i am aware of the issue because slater's been talking about it for years you can also follow chris on twitter at herring underscore nba h-e-r-r-i-n-g underscore nba as i said in the intro this is probably going to be the transition point into the off season and the draft and all of that i'm guessing next week will be a draft related show considering this is exactly one week away and that's generally what i want to do don't know the exact timing yet but that's pretty much where this goes and then free agency starts about a week after that so getting pretty close to it i've been watching a lot of film i'm really excited to have the time to do that and a short finals actually really did help me out because gave some extra window to watch footage on all these guys and real gym radio 
swings in with that. For those of you who are interested, my assumption is that we will be going back to the capsule episodes, which I take a whole division. I bring on usually two experts and we talk about both the off season and then preview the regular season. And so I haven't really started the conversations with those people yet, but that's something I like doing in the summer. And for a weekly show, that lines up pretty well. And then, of course, if something big happens, can be talked about separately. If I have a guest that comes on with a good angle, I can do that anyway. It's just that those are a piece of the puzzle rather than the whole puzzle. If you want to support this show, there are a lot of great things you can do. Leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. You can subscribe, download every episode. Those are big things that you can do. And if it's in iTunes, that's great. If it's not, I'll survive, but I, I really do prefer it there. It's still huge in our business. You can also just spread the word. Tell people, hey, this episode or the show in general, it's worth your time. And there are still a lot of people who don't know about it. That's just the way it works. I do what I can to promote it. So does Real GM. So does Podcast One. I'm so thankful to have them. But word of mouth is very important with that. The other massive thing you can do with this show is you can support our sponsors, simplecontacts.com slash Real GM or the Real GM promo code, $30 off your first order. Great product. I've tested it out for myself, even though I don't wear contact lenses because I wanted to make sure that it was the real deal and I was blown away. Hims, go to forhims.com slash Real and you get a five dollar. You can get a five dollar trial month. That's a, a big discount while supplies last. And TrueCar, great place to buy new and used cars. And then the last big thing you can do right now, and just in the immediate, podcastone.com/slash/my-survey, or just go to Podcast One and click the survey banner. Less than five minutes, completely anonymous, and it just gives information that advertisers are looking for. And if I can give advertisers better information about who is listening to the show, then hopefully they were more willing to advertise on the show, and that makes it for worthwhile. And as I said in the beginning, that is the big differentiator between the show being one day a week and being more than one day a week is just having enough advertising because it takes a lot of time to do. I love doing it because I edit it myself, but I I love the show and I will do it as long as I can. And that is a part of the as long as I can part is is the advertising. So if you have any feedback, also good, bad or indifferent, Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I sometimes respond, but I always read it and I do what I can. And if you want to hear specific analysis on a draft prospect, Nate Duncan and I are doing that on Dunked On. So we're going through a bunch of different guys. And I think the tentative plan is to do the whole top 10 of like 10 guys. It might not necessarily be the top 10, but we're toying with some more interesting ideas to get a little bit deeper. Only have a week left, so we'll see where we actually go. But that's enough rambling for now. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Healthy lifestyle depends on quality sleep, and Sleep Number is here to help you sleep more efficiently. Sleep efficiency is the amount of restful sleep you have at night and is a key part of your overall health. Here are some tips to help you get the most efficient sleep possible. Reduce caffeine consumption before noon and limit late-night alcohol. Get regular exercise during the day, which helps you feel tired in the evening. And keep track of your sleep health with data from your Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Sleepers who routinely use their Sleep Number 360 smart bed features get almost 100 hours more proven quality sleep per year. With that much extra energy, you could get more quality family time, volunteer at a meaningful charity, or exercise, meditate, and reconnect with nature. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep, which starts with Sleep Number adjustability. It's time for Sleep Number's ultimate sleep number event. Save 50% on the Sleep Number 360 limited edition smart bed, plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com slash podcast one for details. Do it for the team. The free COVID vaccine is FDA authorized for kids five and up. Do it for your besties and the resties. It's safe for your child and can help protect their friends. Do it for birthdays. And help protect your family. And game night. When you give your child the vax, you give them the power to learn. Do it for field trips. And campouts. To experience. And big hugs. And to be a kid. Get your child vaccinated and give them the power. Paid for with Pennsylvania taxpayer dollars.